0: Welcome back to another episode of Rent Free. I'm your host, Drew Vandemore, and this week's episode is just awesome. I'm joined by Extra Points founder, Matt Brown, to discuss everything from his journey to college sports, to growing up in Ohio, to the newsletter and going out on his own, and everything else in between. Matt and I had a great conversation, I really appreciated him touching on his background and how it came to be with him working in college sports. On top of all of that, we discussed UConn's football future and specifically a newsletter he re- recently released after going to the UMass UConn game, where he discussed with A.D. David Benedict, the future of the UConn football program, and we even dive into the coaching search that's getting ready to take place as well. I really enjoyed talking with Matt, and I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Without further ado, Matt Brown. I'm now joined by an extremely special guest, uh, Extra Points founder and college sports writer Matt Brown. Matt, how are you? I'm, I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it's great to be here, and obviously, you know, love your your work covering all sorts of college sports, whether it's FBS or FCS, all the way down to the Division three and NAIA levels, so appreciate you doing that. We'll dive into, you know, your background in college sports and how it came to be of interest to you and, you know, your journey sort of through the professional ranks, working for various sites and ultimately starting your own site. And then we'll also dive into the UConn article that you published the other day and then uh, maybe get your thoughts on the future of the program and the viability of, you know, the program moving forward as well. So looking forward to diving in. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd be more than happy to. Cool, so I guess let's just start. You grew up in Ohio, and obviously Ohio's a, a major college football area and college sports culture. Just sort of talk to me about you know your experience growing up in Ohio and, and maybe where you found that first love for, for college sports.
1: Yeah,, so I grew up in a place called Licking County, which I didn't realize was something that people would make fun of until I, I, I moved away I lived you know lived and worked in a couple little towns there, which is it's pretty close to Columbus. Okay. You know, I, you know I, uh, I graduated from high school is 25, 30 miles away, right? So everyone is obviously a, a huge Ohio State fan. It's, it's football is this really important cultural tradition. And it was interesting in my family because, you know, even though we lived in this more rural area, uh, you know, my dad wasn't really a big football guy. And my mom is from or was from Brazil. She immigrated to the, to the United States when she was, I think, eight. And, wow. um, you know, most Brazilians... At that time, we were typically resettled in places where there are other Brazilians, right? Which is generally South Florida, or um, outside of New York, or in Massachusetts, or outside of Boston, where there's a whole bunch of Portuguese immigrants. And for whatever reason, we ended up in Cleveland, and uh, <laughs> there, there's, there's like no Brazilians. <laughs> and, and part of how my mom kind of acclimated and became Americanized and learned English was through Cleveland Browns broadcasts, and oh. and and that I mean, we, we know that later when we left Cleveland, and, and I think she she kind of. Kept that with her a little bit, and I, as a kid, you know, looked at football as not just something that I liked on its own merits, but it, it was almost a thing that you would embrace to be extra American. And there was there was definitely a push in my community, right, as, as having the the one mom in, in town with the funny last name, and and who could speak different language. You, you want to fit in. You want to be extra American, and so. I got into football at a young age. I I studied American political science. I worked in like American civic institutions. I'm a Latter-day Saint, which is like the most American religion you can possibly have. And so all of those things kind of, kind of melded together. And, um, I, I think it, I think influenced my interest in, 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 in football, particularly I think college athletics specifically, I'm from an educator family. You know, uh, I was a teacher, my sister uh is a teacher my mother was a teacher and then became a professor that taught teachers um and this intersection of education and sports that's college football yeah. uh, and, and that's that that's been like my laser focus for a long time
0: i think it's fascinating in you know especially the the cultural component of college football you know so many people get caught up maybe in the various traditions or the various you know conferences that they're in but even using it like you said to acclimate to you know a new a new location or a new place it's it's pretty incredible when you think about you know being able to combine that educational component also with the athletic component and what that can mean for not just an individual or for a team but for you know families in the area as well so i really appreciate that background and obviously you mentioned your you know educational background and you're an educator at heart that obviously translated into going to schools as well. You went to three different schools. Is that right? You went to American and 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 wound up transferring to you know Ohio State and um, started at the Newark campus, and then ultimately wound up at OSU. I guess just when you were going through that process, did you even consider schools that had football? Obviously, American does not sponsor football. But did you have any interest in you know attending a school with? Uh, you know, a large athletics program, or was that even not really part of your initial consideration?
1: You, you know, it, it, it's funny because I'm trying to think here. As a high schooler, I applied to American. I applied to Ohio State, the main campus. I applied to Miami, Ohio, which is just what everybody, what I heard of Ohio did. Uh, BYU, because it's it's almost free if you're LDS. Yeah. And Case yeah. Western, which is a, a, a smaller, private, more academically selective school in Cleveland. Yeah, but school. I'll be honest, as a high schooler, I wasn't interested in going to Ohio State. And I just, like, definitely wasn't interested in going to BYU. <laughs> the biggest reason, because Ohio State's like 50,000 students, and I'm from right. this, this town of 4,000 people. My name is Matt Brown, right? Like, If my name <laughs> had been Tiago Figueiredo, and there, was, there was, I would be the only dude with that name on campus, maybe it'd be one thing, but you know, my email address when I eventually ended up in Columbus was brown.2600. <laughs> and like there were like nine other dudes with my name, and and uh, that presents some some logistical challenges. Like what what I what my priority was as a high schooler, I wanted to get out of rural Ohio, but I didn't want to get so far away that I I couldn't get home in a day's drive. Mm-hmm. And I thought I wanted to work in politics. I was radicalized by the West Wing, like a whole generation of other you know liberal doofuses. <laughs> right. And like and thought, OK, I want, I want to live in Washington, D.C. This is the you know I want to I want to I was a musician. I wanted to keep playing music while, while studying government. And so American seemed like a great fit. Uh, I went there. And it was, I think, a mostly positive experience after that first year. But then I, I went to serve an LDS mission and American decided not to hold my scholarship. And then I had a bunch of, of, of really significant family problems. Like my dad passed away. My mom got very sick. I uh, suffered a significant injury um, and had to you know, do physical therapy for like a year. So at that point, it's like your life's upside down. It doesn't make sense to to spend a lot of money to go to the school. No one's ever heard of. And, um, uh, when you, when you need, have always other needs. So, you know, I, I, Ohio state's Newark campus is is very cheap. It was 10 minutes from where I grew up. I could, I could be at home. I could go to physical therapy. I could drive my mom to chemo and, and, and finish some gen eds. I figured out what I wanted to do. And at that point it was like, well, I'm halfway done with college. Um, Ohio State is a good school it's close by and, and in the end ultimately I'm glad I, I'm glad I ended up in Columbus because I don't think I would have my current job if I hadn't gone to spend some time at a major football institution and when you're at a school that's bigger than like the state of Wyoming right like yeah. you, you, there, there are just opportunities that are available to you there that are harder to come by if you're at a school with 3,000 people
0: did you that's fascinating background in in and so I guess you, you, you sort of mentioned that, you know, you don't think you would have the, the job you had today if you didn't go to Ohio state, you didn't have the job that you have today, even coming out of college, you know, out of, out of college, as do an elementary school teacher, just sort of, what was that journey like? And, you know, maybe what was the background on that? Yeah. I mean, when I
1: was there, Ohio state didn't even have an undergraduate journalism program. They had some graduate courses, but typically if you're in Ohio and you want to be a journalist and you have decent grades, you go to Ohio. They go to the script School, which is, which is very good. Um, I don't think I realized I didn't want to be in politics until like my, my senior year. I worked for the Ohio Attorney General's office for a little bit. I did some stuff for like the city of Newark internships. And I realized, I don't think this is for me. And yeah, what I really love is, is writing. I'm good at it. I can make people laugh. I'm, I'm interested in telling these stories, but it's too late to transfer. <laughs> so um, what, I, what I had done, I actually got in a job uh, pretty early. I did Teach for America which is a program that takes relatively high achieving college students who don't study education and sends them to teach in um, high need school districts throughout the country. And that was something that I thought was ideologically important to me. And I figured I'd do this for a little while and then move on to, to, to kind of either work in policy or or work in journalism or or something else. And so I I ended up going to New Orleans, never lived in the South before. um, And I was a complete garbage teacher. I was, I was terrible. Like I was, I wasn't, I wasn't trained for what I was walking into this is a couple years after Katrina, right? Like my school's a trailer. Um, I, w- I had no idea how to be, how to do effective classroom management. I didn't realize I was like secretly kind of busting a union. I had no idea. Um, I was so naive. I didn't really understand why, uh, a white looking person named Matt Brown from the North might be received differently by, uh, you know, by, by my, like, my, my peers and my students. And, and I, 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 just, I, I was really ignorant. When I had a little bit of free time, I would occasionally uh, do freelance stories. I, I covered a couple of University of New Orleans baseball games. I did a, a little bit of, of prep sports, but mostly what I learned was I'm not good at this. And this is such an important job. That this, these students deserve to have somebody here who is good at this. So, like, as soon as that contract was up, you know, I, I ended up leaving, uh, and and just figure out where to go. And when you're a son of the Midwest and you don't know where your next move is, you move to Chicago because <laughs> that's, yeah. like, that's like that's what everybody else does. And and I, I did that. I dabbled in political organizing for a little bit just because I needed a job. I, I worked for a congressional candidate in Indiana during the Tea Party election, which as a Democrat was real rough. Yeah, um, I can imagine. But like honestly, like, I, look, you look at these early jobs, right? I, I was a Mormon missionary. So I had the, the name tag and the bicycle and I'm knocking on doors, trying to get people to talk to me about Jesus, which of course nobody wants to do. And then I'm coming and trying to teach inner city fourth graders how to do multiplication, which they don't really want to do. And then I'm coming and knocking doors in Kokomo and Logansport and Plymouth, Indiana, trying to talk about who's your values and social security. And they don't want to do any of that either, right? So yeah. like, if those are your early career experiences, what on earth is Jimmy Sexton going to say to me that's going to scare me? Like, what, what is it about college athletics, right? That's going to seem intimidating. I mean, like the media can be a stressful job and a lot of people freak out about things. But like when my baseline is set that low, it's I think it's pretty easy to be a little bit more unflappable and calm and have experience trying to talk to people who don't really want to talk to you because that's what my early 20s were all about.
0: Do you think you were able to leverage some of that You know, earlier when we were talking, you mentioned, you know, your mom using the Browns as a a sort of mechanism to adapt culturally to, you know, America. Do you think you were able to take any similar lessons from that experience to your trip down to New Orleans? Because obviously, especially post-Katrina, that's a much different place than, you know, DC area and and Cleveland, Ohio area, Columbus, Ohio area is.
1: Dude, it's funny you mentioned that because um, that was – that was exactly what i tried to do to to, to build yeah. like a common ground especially because when i was there the saints won the super bowl so like i'll, I'll give you i'll give you an example right so like in, in my fourth grade classroom i uh, tried to imagine the way the tables were set up the the kids were you were typically in like table groups of four and um i would let them name their table groups right so you know like okay like table group red or table group you know whatever Pokemon, you know, you're, 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 you're doing well with your, with your classwork, you're following classroom rules, like you, know, this table gets reward, this table gets you something first. And um, I remember there was a, when I let the kids name their tables, they would usually pick NFL teams, right? Like, you know, the, the best, everyone wants to be the saints, right? But you might have, you might have the Falcons for some, some kids that are, that uh, want to rebel a little bit, or you might have the, the Panthers team, right? And what I would do for the, the kids that were really not following rules as they're like because i you know I could give them a demerit, I can make them come in and eat lunch with me and like those or call their mom, and that those punishments weren't really effective. I'll tell you when I told them, I want to rename your table group to Detroit Lions that worked <laughs> <laughs> right like it, it, it's it's just about trying to find ways to like reach people where they were. I had a kid who was, uh, it was on an i e p and really kind of behaviorally challenged, and like the best behavior and the best engagement that I got from him was a week when I did nothing but call him Darren Sharper. Like he asked to be called Darren Sharper. He took electrical tape and like made himself like a little goatee. And I'm yeah. like, all right, Darren Sharper, you're doing a great job here as line leader. Darren Sharper, really appreciate what you're doing here with like the hand sanitizer. And like that worked. And and that and that's that's what you have to that's that's what you had to do. And sometimes sometimes it backfired. Like I, I had a you know, our our classroom had a bunch of pennants and like pictures of other you know, colleges, and I let them know that I, I went to Ohio State and I was really into sports. We talked about that sometimes, and you know, if they get mad at me, they they, they the first thing they try to do one is would say something rude about my girlfriend, and you know, when that didn't work, they say something rude about Ohio or like Ohio State or like Ohio State football or something. And like, look, whatever keeps you plugged in and engaged, that's what you got to do.
0: Absolutely, no, that's fascinating. I. I, I think it's so like it's so interesting just to talk about how everybody is different, right? In reaching, especially different kids, you know, depending on what their home situation is or what, how they grew up or how they grew up or, you know, where you go to school or where you live, you know, it's such a different experience. And so that's great insight and sort of being able to connect with different kids in different ways and rewarding them maybe in non-traditional ways that, you know, other teachers may not think of. So I appreciate you sharing that. What... um. So, you know, obviously you talked about the school and you talked about moving to Indiana and getting into the political organization spectrum. Eventually you decide, hey, I love college sports. I love sports in general. I want to make this my career. What sort of goes into that? And and when you first started to have those considerations, you know, who else did you have to run that by and what did it look like when you tried to make the, you know, the transition?
1: I I, I was I was really trying to make that happen. As soon as I left teaching, and and at first my thought was, I what I want, what I really want to do is make writing my career, and yep. I know sports the best, but you know I, I applied for jobs covering education, I and and going to school board meetings and, and and being on those beats. I did a little bit of freelance work in that world. Um, for me, the consideration was just like I didn't come from a really wealthy family, and when you you know moving around across the country as much as I did, I didn't have a whole lot of savings. So it was, you need to do whatever you need to do to make money. And then when you make enough money that you don't have to do everything else doing sports and you could go do that. So, I, you know, I was blogging for SB Nation before I had a full time job for like three years. Wow. And those were regular conversations. Like I got married relatively early. I, right after I turned 25. Uh, and, you know, I'm making 200 bucks a month, 250 bucks a month. And, and, you know, those are conversations I have with my wife, like, is it worth me spending this much time to do this? Uh, how, how many, how, how much time are we going to give ourselves to, to throw this much time and energy? Because, you know, because if, if you broke down when I was doing for Vox on an, like an hourly basis, when I was still a contractor, it wouldn't have been minimum wage easily. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's funny. I think I probably did that for you know, two and a half years. And I, I, I weekends I'd, I'd cover high school games, right. I'd take whatever assignment I could, but, after two years, like the two and a half years that I was very close to quitting, and going to get an MBA, I was actually I was going to MBA fairs. I remember doing yeah. a campus visit at like DePaul and Chicago. Was looking through any of that, but um, that year, like right, right, like shortly before I was going to start applying. Um, I got a, a job offer, both you know, to work in education administration that would have paid pretty well. And then this job offer from, from SB Nation, which is really the only place that was ever going to hire me because they needed somebody who was prepared to write from the perspective of a fan. And that also had a little bit of like HR background or had mm-hmm. a teaching background. So it was like the perfect gig for me. So, I mean, I, I look at this. You have to be lucky to make this a full time gig, right? And, yeah. and, and i did and i i think I've been fortunate that I've taken advantage i think of a, a little bit of that luck but this was very much right place right time right fan perspective right weird educate like a professional background that let me get my foot in the door and that being in there has, has helped me stay
0: that's that's fantastic and we'll obviously dive into your you know career and working for yourself and creating extra points in in a second but you know, diving into the SB Nation piece of it a little bit. So you, you know, you start doing that full time and obviously, you know, gain a a pretty decent following and, you know, have a a good audience and you decide to write a book. How, you know, you talked about wanting to be a writer and your writing background, but how does one even start with writing a book and deciding on the topic? And, you know, I'm sure there was times where you started, you know, chapters or sections and wind up deleting all of it. Just what was that, what does that process look like? And and how did you even come to do that?
1: Yeah, I, I'll I'll be honest. Like this isn't terribly romantic or anything, right? But like one of the big catalysts of motivators to me to write that book was fear. <clears throat> because, you know, I had been at Vox for a couple of years at that point. And <clears throat> I was – a little bit stuck in my career, I wasn't really making very good money, and I, I I was trying to move in a more editorially focused direction rather than business operations and and editorial stuff, which is more of what I was doing. And I was freelancing and doing some stuff for ESPN Nation flagship, And I thought like what what I need to do really is establish myself here as an expert and do something like independent um, to kind of force the issue to help me grow. And I also, uh, I I was <clears throat> I, I was twenty nine. 28. When I was looking into this, I'm like, it'd be nice to be able to do a book before I turn 30. And my mother is dying of cancer, and I'd love to be able to say I wrote a book before she passed away. And so, like, well, we're we're just gonna we're gonna throw myself into this. And I had been writing a lot for Vox about conference realignment, because I was covering the the Big 12's first kind of dalliance with expanding. And that was, I think, my one of my first breakthroughs, I guess, as, as a writer, because I was one of, you know, I, I got our company into using open records requests. and We were able to break a couple of, of, of stories that way. We were able to have begin to build a source network um, from covering that. And that got me thinking, as a, you're, you're trying to think of a new way to write about the Big 12's looking at Memphis, Central Florida, South Florida, and all these other things. Yeah. Everyone on the internet's writing that same story. Um, so I, I started to dig into newspaper archives and try to understand historical context and what we can learn from those things. And that led me to finding about the airplane conference and about the Metro Super Conference. And I realized I was really interested in that stuff. And, and that was, I think, the beginning of what motivated me to write a book and, and dig into some of those questions. I would love to write another book. I have a couple of other book ideas, but the way that I did it was, I th- in retrospect, abjectly insane. I wrote the whole thing in six months. <laughs> oh and my god! I, a, and what I did basically every night was either read or write. I, th- I think, I think, I, the first man, the first draft, which was about eighty five thousand words, was finished in four months. And I had a baby. <laughs> like and yeah. it, it, was, it was, just all I did. And I, I felt like I have to do it in order
0: to put myself in a
1: position like provide for this family. And was that, that, that
0: at- the first, can I can I interrupt? Matt? Yeah, please. Was that, was that the first? Sort of, I know. Obviously, you had written for SB Nation, but was that book the first experience in terms of college sports where you sort of, you know, went on your own and went outside of the? And obviously, there's publishing and all that stuff that goes into it. But you know, going outside of a call it internet platform or a another, yeah. Vox Media or another platform that you use to publish.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I had written for some newspapers before. But, but a lot of that experience was totally new. I didn't know anything about publishing. I had a nice. lot of meetings with agents and with publishing houses, and it, it made more financial sense to self-publish at, at that point, especially because I, I had a, it was a bit easier for me to do my own marketing than, than it might have been if I hadn't worked, been working for Espination at the time. But um, it, all of it was new. Um, none of our none of my peers had ever written a book before. I like or done yeah. the research, and you know, that, I think that's been kind of a recurring theme for me, right? Like, I didn't go to Medill, um, and I didn't, I didn't really have a bunch of people specifically advocating for me, right? So, I, I, a lot of that stuff I just had to do myself.
0: And I, I so I'll, I'll plug the book title real fast because I don't think we did that. The title is called What If, a closer look at college football's great questions. And obviously you touched on it, touches on everything from, you know, the history of the airplane conference to conference realignment to, you know, all sorts of different stuff. So highly recommend it as a read if, you know, if you have if anybody out there has not read it yet. I do want to ask you about the influence that you think that might've had on the decision to ultimately go work for yourself. So the book itself is released, and you know it's a, it's a success, and people are buying it and reading it, and, and it's doing well. The decision to you know go into extra points full time. What sort of went into that, and was it exhilar- more exhilarating or more terrifying? <laughs> what what was sort of the the background on the decision to you know go on your own?
1: Yeah, I know it, it's funny because like the, the the idea of going in on your own as kind of having a moment right now in media circles, and again, there's some romanticism behind it, but like for me, right. it, it was it was more about survival. So, so I mean, I I I think I think I can I can say this here and not get in trouble, right? Like, yeah, um, I was uh, furloughed at Vox right when the pandemic started, mm-hmm. and I was told when I was furloughed that I would not be returning to my current position that, you know, if I was brought back, it would be at a, at a writer position and it would be at a, um, a different salary band. And uh, you know it's not really a state secret, right? Like the last year and a half at Vox was really a negative experience. Um, yep. it, w- it was hurtful. I, I wasn't satisfied with where the company was going with my own management with, uh, some of the decisions that were being made. And, you know, when I found out furloughs were, were happening, I, I, I actually went up there and volunteered and said like, look, I don't think this is working out you want to do something with this comp with your company and with the sports team that I don't really align with, you should just, you should furlough me. And, you know, self candidly, like I wanted to do that rather than just quitting because I wanted them to pay me severance. Right. Um, and, and, and they, they, they did that. They, they furloughed and got rid of most of my peers. And I took the buyout the day it was, I was eligible for it. Uh, Cause I, I, I knew that like coming back wasn't an option. And right. quite frankly, like they, they weren't going to bring me back anyway. They, you know, that's the, they're they're not really in the college sports business anymore. Yeah. So at that point I'm sitting here and it's, you know, we're in the middle of this pandemic and there's very few media jobs happening. uh, And the ones that do exist are generally really low paid and they're in Manhattan. So I'm like, look, I am, I'm in my mid, I'm in my early thirties now. I've got a wife, I've got two kids. I've got a mortgage. I've got a church. I've got a community. I'm not moving. Right. So I gotta, I don't have any other, my only options are go work at the deli counter. (laughs) <laughs> or go into business for yourself. And I was lucky, like Extra Points actually existed like eight months beforehand. I was doing it for free. I was writing twice a week. I was just kind of trying to understand how newsletters work. And I had pitched this project to Vox several, several times when I realized that newsletters were going to become a, a much larger part of the media ecosystem. You know, They decided to not go in that direction. But I looked at it as just, I don't have a choice. So let's fire this up. Let's see if it works. And I'll keep looking for other, other employment. And about four months into it, it became I realized that actually, this could just be my employment. this yeah. this is and, and I've been very lucky now. It's been a year and a half. Extra points makes about seventy thousand dollars in revenue and uh, projects to uh, probably clear six figures late next year. Um, you know, I'm at a place where I can hire freelancers and pay them real money and uh, you know, look at other commercial opportunities. And so, like it worked. and it was really hard. And I got really lucky and had to do a lot of really difficult things launching this from my basement. But I'm sure the book helped because because that that, that, <laughs> that uh, it was another proof that like no one's going to do this for you, so you need right. to look it up and, and and how to figure out how to do it yourself. You know,
0: that's awesome. And obviously, you know, you mentioned your your wife Taylor. I, she has to play an incredible role in all of this as well, right? In the success. Oh, of- oh dude,
1: uh, un- unquestionably. And I, I I joke about this, but. I think I have a responsibility to be really upfront about it. Like the way this is able to work, you know, one, I was fortunate to be able to get a severance and I knew that the, my, the marriage with Vox media was not going to end well. So I've been saving a lot of money, but Taylor uh, also works. And she's been able to keep her job the whole time. She has insurance. Um, she works from home and you know that provides a backstop that allowed me then to basically make almost no revenue from extra yeah. points for like the first four and a half months. And I've reinvested every dollar I got back, back in the company. Not everybody can do that. There have been times when my brain's been fried and Taylor has done copy editing. Uh, I usually write extra points in the evening uh, between 8 and 10 p.m. usually mm-hmm. um, because I spend the day doing podcasts and interviewing people and trying to do reporting. And she helps with putting the kids down at bed Um, and and, and been in an emotional and financial and logistical support on, on every level. And I don't think anybody can really start a business that has any kind of dependence unless you have a really supportive spouse.
0: You mentioned, I mean, getting lucky and that we've talked about it a couple of times just related to your career in terms of the roles or being in the right place at the right time. But to your point, if you don't have, you know, a spouse that is supportive and all in and understands kind of the additional, not burdens, but the additional responsibilities that fall on them as somebody is creating something of their own and having to spend the time and the money to continually reinvest in that, you know, then the chances of success, I think, go down drastically. So that's awesome to hear that, you know, you have that, that rock and that support. And obviously it's translated now, as you mentioned into incredible success and the newsletter has both a a free and paid subscription option. I'm a a paid subscriber. So I have, I, I still haven't gotten my stickers stickers yet. Yeah. I need to, I need to fill out the form to get my stickers, but um it's, I'll,
1: I'll, I'll get I'll get you after the show. I'll make sure. Okay. you Okay. Okay. Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll make sure I slap them on my laptop here. Um, and, and so wanted to give that quick plug. It's you know obviously a great subscription. And it comes out four days a week. Is that correct?
1: Yep four four
0: days a week. Usually
1: Monday through Thursday. Um, two of them are free. There's a, there's a free podcast that comes with it too, and then two of them are behind uh, the paywall. And that's how I get most of my revenue. Probably like a little over ninety percent of our revenue comes from subscriptions. Gotcha.
0: That's great, and and one of those newsletters recently that was released was related to uh, the University of Connecticut, which is my alma mater, and um, I'm a very proud UConn football fan. Even though there uh, may not be too many of us out there, I just want to dive in first of all before we get into the UConn specific program stuff. You had a chance to see my Huskies play in person in I Massachusetts. Did. Uh, against the UMass Minutemen, just sort of what was that experience like, and how did that maybe open your eyes a bit to you know, FBS football in New England?
1: I, I'm so glad I went. Um, I had never one, I had never been to New England before, uh, so really um, that nope, I, I, I've covered a Rutgers game. I've been to New York City a couple of times for work. That was it. Um, so I, I was kind of you know glad to, to check a couple of states off the board, right? But it was um, what I found. Is that there? And I'm sure you you know this even better than I do. There's so many people that really care about their athletic programs and just want to be taken seriously. Yeah. You, 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 UMass and UConn fans like they're in on the joke too. They're happy to to dunk on their teams on Twitter. Like there's a little bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But also they want someone to come and validate their fandom and validate what what the, the the time and energy and love that they've sunk into this program and let and 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 someone to hear them say this matters to me. And so I've never had an experience like this before when I've gone to cover a game, high school, college, pros, anything, where people repeatedly thanked me for being there. From the athletic director to staffers to fans, and I could just wander into the stands. And when when I cover a game like this, I try to dress in the most stereotypically reporter way possible. I have like a corduroy jacket with elbow pads, and I'm wearing a tie (laughs) and have like my credential out there, right? Which basically just screams like, I'm a reporter, come talk to me. right? And everyone did. So, like, I, well, the thing that I've tried to write about a lot at extra points is I think the question of is, is a football program sustainable or why we, we we're doing this? What does success look like? Is really complicated, and it it, it it changes a lot from school to school. I think if right, if we're being totally honest here, and and I don't know if Dave Benedict will admit this on the record, but if you get a cocktail or two into him, I like, I think you would you would you would phrase it this way, right? Like UConn's not going to win a national title.
0: Well, we you can make in point the- twenty twenty.
1: Oh, that's true. The, the New York times didn't did did. make you the national people. People do forget that. But like, exactly you're, you're not going to make the college football playoff, whether it's eight teams or 12 teams or, or realistically 16 teams or 120. I mean, well, maybe someday, if it's 120, <laughs> right. But like, and you don't really need this to grow enrollment like sacred heart does. Right. Or, or some of these other you know, smaller schools necessarily need to do, but can you build an experience that is valuable and positive for the football players and the staffers and the students and and not be a laughing stock and, and play games against meaningful competition. Yeah, I, I really do think that that's possible. I think it's possible at UMass, too, even at the stadium that looked like a high school field. And yeah. that's not I'm not saying that pejoratively like that's it's got field level concessions, man. Like that's, that's, not, that's what it was. <laughs> right. Um, and, and still talk to close to 10,000 people that said this is important to me. And it's important to me, even if they lose, because this is an extension of my identity. And if, if you can do that in a fiscally responsible way, I, I think you should do it. And it doesn't really matter if you if you don't go if you, you can't go nine and three very often,
0: you know? I mean Matt, I'll I'll just echo everything and, and give you even a little bit of, you know, insight into my background. You know, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, right? I went to yeah. undergrad at UConn. I mean, nobody does that, right? Like nobody does that. Nobody goes. You see, you no. hear a lot of like, oh, you know, people come from New York or wherever down to the South to go to school. Or they go from Connecticut down to school. Very rarely do you hear people come from you know the South to go up to school without some sort of connection. But I knew when I was looking for schools, I wanted a school that played FBS football. I grew up a massive college football fan. I grew up a Nebraska fan specifically, and going to games. My mom played volleyball at the school, and. You know, I grew up going to those games and and yeah. followed college football forever. And at the time, you know, UConn was in the old Big East. They were going, they went to the Fiesta Bowl the year that I was looking for colleges to play Oklahoma. And I think the success at that time of the football program actually had a large influence on my decision to ultimately wind up going to school at UConn. And I can very confidently say my interest in the athletic program at UConn, if they were to downgrade the program or eliminate it altogether as a lot of, you know, journalists or writers have suggested would decrease drastically if they did make that decision. I mean, it's not about to your point, winning the national championship. It's not about at this point, obviously within it being independent, even winning a conference championship, it's about playing games against regional schools that matter. And when I made friends up there and met their friends Their friends go to school at Syracuse and they go to school at UMass and they go to school at, you know, the local Rutgers. They go to local schools up there. And so I think UConn now, especially as an independent with the ability to play, you know, they've got Home and Homes lined up with a lot of those teams. Boston College is another one of those. It matters. And if they were to abandon that or to step away from that, I think it would be, you know, just a huge mistake. And I will say, I, I do agree. I've seen the stadium, McGork Stadium in Amherst. It's, you know, it's not tremendous, but good for UMass. You know, when they first went FBS, they were playing games in Gillette two hours from campus. And now they've been able to bring that back to campus and they've been able to generate that support and that student involvement. And I think that's something that UConn has been able to do as well to a certain extent. Unfortunately, you know, the record over the last five years or so has kind of eroded a lot of that in terms of butts and seats. But people care. Like if you go on Twitter and you go on any sort of, uh, if somebody tweets out like a, a negative article on UConn or somebody tweets out a negative take on UConn, like we sort of have that, like, Hey, we can rib our own team, but if you start to rib us, like mm-hmm. that's, crossing, that's crossing the line. You Absolutely. I mean? so, yeah.
1: It's, it's it's how I feel about people uh, saying terrible things about Cleveland. I right. know I could say terrible things about Cleveland, but you can't.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so um, yeah, I guess, you know, all of that being said, I want to sort of dive into the, the UConn newsletter here that you wrote. So one of the first quotes that you bring up in the article itself is you mentioned, you know, that a power five assistant via the athletic, I think actually had the actual quote says that UConn quote, doesn't care about the program. How does that perception even happen in the first place in your opinion? Like what sort of things have to happen for that to become the the norm amongst the ecosystem in collegiate athletics, if you will.
1: Yeah, I I think it's pretty obvious. Two things happened in recent memory. Randy Edsel was paying to subsidize an assistant coach salary out of his own salary because he didn't have a a large enough salary pool. And an unheard of move in recent memory, the school made a conference realignment decision um, that disadvantaged their football team. With almost everybody else, it's a a statement of fact, like a doctrine, that if you change conferences, it's because football is driving. And UConn said, like, this is something that benefits all of our athletes but football, and we'll figure football out. And to you and me and other people may look at that and think, well, that was rational. I I honestly have not talked to a UConn fan that is not happy about being back in the Big East. But in football coach brain and and, and in the aging world, that's a sign that you're not a football school. So it it is this weird thing, right? Because like I talked to I talked to Benedict about this. I, I did another newsletter about it, and he's saying like, look, we got a nice stadium. We have one of the best locker rooms in uh, the G five. We're gonna pay a football coach probably close to two million dollars, which would be in the top ten in 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 the G five. We're we're as committed as anybody else could possibly be committed. We can't move our school right to South right. Florida. And we, 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 we made a difficult decision here to support the rest of our athletes. But if you look at what we've actually done and look what we spent our money on, we feel like we've demonstrated that commitment.
0: How much, you mentioned this, the head coach salary commitment and the statement that David Benedict made, you know, not only did David Benedict come out in, in your newsletter and issue support for the program, but the governor, Ned Lamont did as well. I guess one How unusual is it for, you know, a a sitting governor to get involved in making these sorts of statements, especially for, you know, like you mentioned, a group of five sort of program. And then two, you know, UConn has the geographical disadvantage, but paying $2 million for a head coach and being willing to increase the existing assistant pool from the, you know, 1.4, 1.5 or so even further, does that combat that geographical disadvantage at all? And does that make a statement towards the commitment to the program?
1: Um, it doesn't really meaningfully combat the geographical disadvantage, right? And and this one of the things, as I understand it here, that UConn really struggled with is you were at a massive geographical disadvantage when it comes to recruiting high school football players. And under Randy Edsel, UConn was really hesitant to get very involved in the transfer portal and by and large didn't recruit JUCO athletes. And if you yeah. were in a place that does not produce nearly enough athletes to, to support, quite frankly, even an SCS football team in my view, you can't leave any stone unturned. You have to be aggressive in the portal. You have to go after JUCOs as long as they can actually pass and, and be admitted and be selected uh, successful in your school. You need to go after grad transfers. You have to shop at the scratch and dent sale and and do everything you can to improve your talent level. And UConn hasn't done that. And Benedict told me that a, a new coach would would have the administration's blessing to be able to do that. If you aren't able to do that, then I think you have to run a system that is built to maximize your chances of winning when you're at a talent disadvantage. I don't know if UConn fans are, are down to run the triple um, or embrace the run and shoot or, or embrace running 110 plays a game. I would think you have to do something crazy like that because unless you start winning just a lot more football games, it's, it's going to be really hard to improve or you just, you just start dropping bags.
0: It's going to be hard to acquire the talent you need to make bowl games. I I, as soon as you start talking about the the junior college ranks, you know, and obviously it's a different situation, a different conference. But I immediately think of Bill Snyder and doing that at at Kansas State. I mean, for years he built rosters through the JUCO ranks in a, a less than fertile talent pool among, you know, surrounding Manhattan, Kansas was able to build it up into a a Big Twelve contender and was, you know, more than competitive for for many years that way. And I think a lot of UConn fans are are probably glad to hear the news that David Benedict is open to, you know, a new coach utilizing not only the transfer portal, but the JUCO ranks as well. Because there are some young talented athletes on the team. And if you if you watch UConn play, Travis Jones is a guy that's going to be in the NFL on the defensive line. And there's a couple other guys that may actually wind up getting looks, but the the team doesn't have enough of those guys, to your point. And so to be able to take some of those guys out of the transfer portal, and you know, we all know Randy Edsel's comments about the transfer portal, which were were certainly interesting. But to use that, or to use the JUCO ranks to sort of plug the the holes on your roster, I think is is critical to be able to go forward. Just, yeah,
1: the the Bill Snyder is is a is a good example. It's I think a little bit easier to do if you're in Kansas because there's a lot of good JUCOs in Kansas. There's a lot right. of good JUCOs in the the Gulf region. There's not as many in the Northeast, but you're going to have to convince kids that aren't from the Northeast to come to UConn one way or another.
0: In doing that, and this maybe gets a little bit beyond the the newsletter that you wrote, but in doing that, what do you think UConn should prioritize when they're looking for the next head coach? Is it that sort of funky offense, like you mentioned, that non-traditional way to move the ball, to maximize your talent with maybe less than stellar recruits? Is it the ability to recruit out of state? Is it the ability to assemble a, a recruiting staff? Is re- regional ties as important in an area that you know doesn't have that that geographical player pool? Like what what we, what should UConn kind of prioritize when they're looking for their next head coach?
1: It is a good question, and I I think there's if it were me, and you know what do I know right? Uh, there's there's a couple of things I think I'd look at. I think first and foremost, honestly, you need a salesman. You need somebody who is going to relentlessly and optimistically promote the brand of UConn football to remind people that we exist and we're not a joke, that we're something that we want to get the fans. We want to get the state of Connecticut involved. Um, You know, Bob Diaco is a um, an extremely weird person uh, and wasn't good at some of the other parts of coaching, but was good at this. You know, I I think a good example would be what Charlotte has a Will Healy. Yeah. Um a, a little bit of a Ted Lasso in it. I think Southern Miss is trying to 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 build out something similar. It would be I don't see how UMass can achieve their structural goals without more support, both nationally and especially regionally. So you want that, right? And then I would probably prioritize somebody that has had success building and establishing a, a consistent culture in uh, programs that are not well resourced or have geographical challenges, and I, I'm not saying you would have to hire an option coach. Listen, I'm a card carrying member of College Football Internet. I'm always going to be supportive of somebody running the triple or the run and shoot or doing something weird, but you know, somebody who had a lot of success at Division three, somebody who was able to to build a program in a place where you can't really recruit locally very well, or was able had to compete with schools that made more money than, than they did. I think that would be more important than a flashy offensive coordinator. Building out a recruiting staff is critical. Like UConn must improve the median talent base of their uh, of their of their department. But I wouldn't go all in on recruiters because, quite frankly, even if you did that, you're still going to be at talent disadvantage for most of your schedule. And I, I think I think bad programs sometimes err on going all in on recruiting. When, um, even if it's successful, you're still left with being like less talented. It's just that that gap is a little bit lower. You need somebody who knows how to, how to overcome and deal with those kind of gaps.
0: The D3 coach, you know, or, or a lower division coach that's experienced success ideas is fascinating as well. I mean, you look at Lance Leipold and what he did at Buffalo. And yeah. I, think, I think a lot of UConn fans sort of feel that way, right? It's like we've got the, the financial commitment and I know we're not in the best geographical area, but you've seen successful programs get built in the New England area in the past. And so if somebody like Buffalo can build up a, a team that's going to bowl games and experiencing success, you know, why can't somebody like UConn do that as well?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, almost everybody is a really good hire away from going 500. Yeah. You you can – I do not think you can build a team that can consistently be in the top 25 at UConn. I definitely think you can build a top 70 team here. And if UConn's able to do that, I think they'll, their athletic department will be fine.
0: Matt, can I ask you one last question before we wrap up? And this has been a ton of fun, so, so thank you. Do you think the basketball brand of UConn ha- helps – In hiring a coach or even recruiting potential, you know, players and staffers to join, knowing that, you know, people know UConn versus maybe a UMass or another New England school, or does being known for basketball and being a quote, basketball school almost hurt in that regard? I think it, honestly, I I think it really helps, right? And and Benedict mentioned this
1: to me, whether you're recruiting a coach or an athlete, if you're at UConn, you can take them to campus and say, look at all of our trophies, (laughs) Right. Look at all of these, of these other places where we've been successful. You can win things here. We, we have administrators and we have coaches and we have people in this community and this institution that know about how to win win something. If you go down to Florida International, you're not going to see that. When you go right. to look at some of the, the FCS and MAC schools that UConn's recruiting against right now, you can't really do that at Kent State. You can't really do that at Bowling Green. You can kind of do it for Akron, but for some, some of these other programs, I think that's compelling. Um, there's also something to be said for being a coach at a place that's going to have lower expectations, which I, I think is important when you're coming in at a, just, we gotta be honest, a really friggin' hard job Yeah, um, and knowing that the, what's happening with women's and men's basketball and to even to a lesser extent, baseball takes some of the heat off there, right? Like the, I think the fact that you kind of honestly can say, listen, everything that you're saying here about geographic disparities and, and headwinds and challenges about football, that's true for baseball and our baseball team whips ass. Yeah. So like we, we, we know how to do it. Um, the the question, you know, that, that I think UConn would say is it, it's not, can you win here? It's why haven't you won here? And being able to point to some, some hardware, I think helps.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's great. And the the point about baseball is, is extremely true. I mean, they were great, obviously this past year in the big East, but even in the American, you know, UConn won the AAC tournament and was a regular in the NCAA tournament amongst what was a great baseball conference at that time as well. So. Matt, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. This has been awesome. I really appreciate you sharing your your personal background and you know getting into the professional ranks and in, in college sports, and then ultimately you know discussing UConn and your experience up in New England. This was just great. So thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you on social media, and how can they subscribe to Extra Points?
1: It's 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 my pleasure. <laughs> I hope this is interesting to some folks. You can find me at Twitter at Matt Brown EP. Uh, I think it's extrapointsmb on Instagram, matt uh, at extrapointsmb.com is my email. You can subscribe to Extra Points uh, for free. Get two newsletters a week completely for free at extrapointsmb.com, or you can subscribe, support independent journalism, get access to our archives of hundreds of newsletters and get four newsletters a week
0: for just $8 a month. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate the time.
1: Yeah, no problem.
0: Thank you. Wow, what an awesome conversation with Matt. I really appreciated him taking the time to go through him growing up in Ohio and walking through his journey, bouncing from colleges between going to American and going to Ohio State Newark and going to Ohio State and ultimately graduating, pursuing a career in education and working in politics before ultimately deciding to pursue a passion of his and work in college sports. It was a really interesting story and background and I really appreciate Matt sharing not only his personal story but giving us some great insight into his conversation with David Benedict and also some insights into the future of the UConn football program. UConn is in a really interesting position as an independent in that I really think they're going to be able to capitalize on their basketball brand and schedule a lot of really interesting regional games and keep most of their schedule on the East Coast. UConn fans obviously will want an improved product on the field but Truthfully, as a fan watching us play different teams, I'm much more interested in seeing us play games against Syracuse and Boston College and UMass and Temple and Navy and Army and even Buffalo than I am in seeing some of the teams that we used to play in the American and some of the teams that are you know, going to wind up in these new conferences moving forwards obviously uconn would love a chance to jump into the acc or the big 10 at some point if that was to ever happen but i think most uconn fans understand that's a limited or small possibility and we're just happy with the way things are going now in other news how about my wake forest demon deacons we are seven and oh the deacons went up to west point this past weekend and won 70-56 over the Army Black Knights. It was quite a game. I went to a Wake Forest watch party here, sponsored by the Wake Forest Alumni Association in Charlotte, and it was a pretty crazy environment, as you can imagine. The Deeks only held the ball for 17 minutes, but they scored 70 points, led by our star receivers, Jacory Warverson and A.T. Perry. The Deeks were able to get past the Knights up in West Point, and... Add another W to the column. The Deeks are now 7 and 0 as we host Duke this weekend in Winston-Salem, a game that I will be at. And unfortunately, it'll be the last game that I'll be able to attend in 2021 in person unless they're able to make the ACC title game or play in a bowl game close to Charlotte. I've really enjoyed being a season ticket holder and I've really enjoyed this ride. So hopefully the Deeks can continue it this weekend and we'll see another win over Duke to get to 8 0. Well, that's it for this week on Rent Free. As always, if you enjoyed the conversation and the interview and the discussion, please leave a rating and a review and let me know what you enjoyed and anything you think I could do even better. I'm looking forward to our future conversations and hope you continue to listen. Until next time, thanks for listening.